Good morning. Did anybody else have a really bad night's sleep? I, I feel a little groggy this morning. I'm just going to tell you that right from the beginning. If I seem a little cranky, you see at 4 a.m., my dog started barking his head off. Pet owners, you maybe have had this experience before. And uh, we had the window open, and a, a dog in the yard behind us started barking his head off to start the whole thing off. So 4 a.m., did I mention it was 4 a.m.? It was 4 a.m., and uh, dog's barking, dog's barking. What is it? What is it? What is it? So finally, get out of bed, go downstairs, and uh, look out the window. And uh, the dog in the yard right behind our yard is out, and the the poor older guy who's trying to get his dog in the house is failing because his dog doesn't want to go back inside. And I'm in my jammies, and it's pitch black outside, and so, so Lauren's up too. So I'm like, all right, I think I'm going to have to go out and help him. So I walk outside. It turns out another neighbor, the guy across the corner, is already out too. He's got a flashlight. And I'm like, what's going on? And he says, there's a possum sitting on your fence. And I look, and sure enough, right on top of our fence, in the middle of the yard, there's this possum sitting there like an owl. Like... <laughs> and one of the dogs sent out the message, however they say possum and dog bark. It's like, possum alert, possum alert. And we've got dogs in every yard around our house. So they're all like, wake up, there's a possum alert. And the possum's just like, <laughs> four in the morning, just sitting on the fence, letting all, all the dogs are going wild. So I go over there and this poor guy can't catch his dog. It's like, wah, 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 wah. So I have to hop the fence in my jammies in pitch black to help this guy get his dog in the house. And then I hop the fence again, and the possum is still sitting on the fence through this whole thing, just like, <laughs> look at the humans. <laughs> so I find a broomstick in the backyard, and I'm just like, oh, no one would know. But I hit the fence instead, and then that possum went running. But anyway, that was at four in the morning, so I'm a little cranky. And uh, if, if I fall asleep while I'm preaching, just shout it or something, because just wake me up, and, I, and I'll continue, you know, like the Energizer Bunny. Uh, I really am excited, though, about where we're going with this next series. The uh, series is called, I Don't Know Where to Start. I don't know where to start. And we're all learning how to share our faith with others. Uh, we don't really know how to share our faith with others all that well. If you're honest, if you had to give yourself a grade, I doubt you'd give yourself an A, B, C, maybe. Who knows? But we're all striving to improve on talking to other people about our faith. Uh, and no doubt every week there are people here in this room who are undecided about Jesus. You don't know what you believe. You're trying to find out what you believe. And I, I trust that this series will be beneficial to you as I lay out what we believe and as I lay out how we can defend that against um, objections. We're going to look at three top objections to the Christian faith this morning. Objections that when someone says them to you, it feels like you just got punched in the nose and you're like, how am I supposed to respond to that one? And then in the coming weeks, we're going to actually look at, you know, another three or four more uh, that'll come up. So we're going to cover all the big ones. So if, if we don't cover, if you're like, oh man, he didn't cover the objection my brother tells me, don't worry, we'll get to it. All right. But we're going to cover three major objections to the faith this morning. And I just want you to understand, for those of you who don't know me that well, like I didn't get saved until I was a freshman in college. So I was the dude who was throwing these objections at Christians. I was the one who's like, oh yeah? Well, how come this? And, and I saw some Christians who were really good at responding, and I saw some Christians who were really terrible 
at responding. But just understand that this is a former skeptic who is now training Christians how to talk to people like me. All right? So that's my heart. Why don't we pray and then we'll get into the word together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word applauds those who are on a search for truth. Thank you that in the book of Acts, the Bereans were of more noble character because every day they searched the scriptures to know if what Paul said was true. And Lord, I just pray for those who are today trying to figure out what they believe about you and God and church and destiny and faith. And, uh, and I pray for those who already have their mind made up. I pray that you would uh, bless all of us, Lord, and teach us how to form our convictions humbly and to share them responsibly. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 for the first point. You might be used to me preaching through a one given passage. That's usually most of the time how I preach. Uh, but in this series, there will be some sermons where uh, it's a topical message, which means I bounce around to different passages and we don't quite dig down deeply in any one. All right, so that's unusual, but it, it fits this, uh, this model, this topic well. So go to Luke chapter 16. And the first objection, major objection to the Christian faith that someone will throw at you, we're going right for the big one. Here's the hard one. You can write it down. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Why would I believe in a loving God who sends people to hell forever? I don't know if you have ever had anyone ask you this question. Have you? Has anyone ever said to you, why would I believe in a God who sends people to hell? Have you ever heard that one? It's a tough one to respond to. Maybe you, what would you say? What would you say if someone said that? Your God sends people to hell forever. Why would I follow him? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that question? This argument, this accusation, this objection will come in different forms. Some people will say, a God who would send people to hell is unfair because people aren't that bad or other people are worse than them. Or some people, don't, they don't even know any better, and how can they end up in hell? Or how could you tell me that people will never deserve a second chance forever? So these are all like variations of the same objection, but they're basically saying they have a problem with a God who would send people to hell. Um, I want you to understand first and foremost that when the topic of hell comes up, do not back away from it. Do not apologize for it. Do not soften it. Do not, do not try and cool hell off with, with some of your apologies. Like, oh yeah, I, I know that's just, you know, but I, it's not what you think. It's not as bad as you think. Or who, do not soften it. And if there's anything in your heart, any, any reason in your heart that you doubt the truth or severity of hell, please get that figured out before you start sharing your faith with others. Because if you start making other people feel better about hell, you're damaging the gospel. All right? And Jesus is a great role model to us because when the topic of hell came up, he did not back away from it and he did not try and soften it up, nor should we. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus tells a story. This is likely a true story. It's different from usual parables because Jesus, usually in parables, doesn't name people. The fact that he assigns a name to it means that this actually probably is a true story that he's reporting on. But it says in Luke 16, verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This is a guy who had it all. Sometimes when I, when I share a message, I like to like cast a character, like an actor playing the part 
of somebody in the Bible. So in my own mind, playing the part of this rich man who eats well every day and is dressed in purple, who's, who's got everything, I'm just going to cast Donald Trump in that role. I don't know his faith, all right? All I'm saying is let's just let him be the actor who's playing this part. There's a rich man who's clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. He's got it all. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was put there, carried like a package. This poor man had nothing, couldn't even get around, and he was laid at the gate of this guy. Covered with sores, he's all sick, not healed, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Donald, if you just a scrap, I just need a, just a, something, anything. Just give me something. I can't even move. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is like one of the most repulsive people. You wouldn't let your kids near this guy. He's filthy. And, and in that day, they would assume he's in that situation because he's upset God. He's being punished. He's not righteous or God wouldn't have let that happen. That's the assumption. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, meaning he went to heaven. Abraham was the original patriarch. Through him would come Israel and eventually Jesus Christ. So to be carried at his side was like the highest hope and aspiration of every Jew. Carried. First he was carried to the rich man's door. Now he is carried by angels to heaven. Then it says the rich man also died and was buried. That's supposed to sound emphatic, like he was buried. Like whatever else you become in this life, you'll be buried like a bone in the end. He was buried, put in the ground. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said, Laz now he's the beggar. Have Lazarus dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus described the horrible reality of hell graphically, all right, using a story of Somebody, it probably happened. Meaning Jesus talked about hell like there are people in hell right now. There are people there right now. And they will never get out ever. And that's a horrifying thought. What is hell? It's eternal conscious torment. And we believe it's eternal and it's conscious and it's torment. Why? Well, look at verse 23. It says he was in Hades being in torment. It's horrifying. It's like being in fire. Well, how can that be? Like, if I stick my finger in a candle, I can hold it there maybe five seconds, and then I'm screaming and passing out. So how can it actually be that I'm in fire, but I'm not every moment just screaming and passing out? Well, you know, God made us so that we are never unmade, which means in the next life, sinner and saint will have a body that is primarily spiritual, but somewhat physical. In this life, your body is primarily physical, and your spirit has to kind of go wherever your body says. It's the opposite in the next life. You have a spiritual body that has some sort of physical nature to it. So when you are in fire in the next life, it's different because you're primarily spiritual, but you have something physical, so it is anguish. It's just like fire, but your body is able to sit in that anguish and not pass out from shock 
but it's still standing in fire. It's just as bad. Okay? It's torment. We don't fully understand how that's going to work, but it's torment. It's also anguish. It says in verse 24, he just wants... He just wants Lazarus to come and dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I, if I could just have a drop of water, my throat is so parched. Um, it, it's, hell is depicted as um, like craving just a drop of water and you're never getting it. There's an unending thirst and you'll never be quenched. It's also separation. It says here a great chasm has been fixed in verse 26 in order that those who pass from here to you can't, and none may go from there. No one goes from heaven to hell. No one goes from hell to heaven. It's irreversible. There's separation. So what's hell like? Standing in fire, thirsty forever, far away from God eternally. Listen, you have to be ready when someone raises the issue of hell. You have to be ready to affirm, yeah, I believe in hell, and it's horrible, and it's forever, and I don't want anyone to go there. You have to be ready to say that. You can't, be, you can't apologize, you can't back down, you can't lessen it. Now let's get to the bottom of this objection. I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. At the heart of this objection is uh, a few things. You can write this down. They're claiming that God or hell is unfair. They're claiming that God or hell is unfair. Meaning the perception is that someone in heaven is, is going to be forever subjected to this uncomfortable reality that they look down and see someone in hell who didn't belong there. And oh my, how did, how did Grandma Ethel end up in hell? Oh my goodness, this is a... But I can't say anything because God will get angry. The perception is that we are going to have to somehow see an, an unjust thing and just swallow it forever. That, that's what they say. But what we believe is that God is just, and his justice is perfect and flawless, which means anyone who ends up in hell will belong there. After, after a comprehensive, fully documented, detailed trial, where the entire life of the person, every thought, every deed, every word, every good deed gone undone, when everything is weighed in the person's life, they will be found guilty and not one person will say, objection, unfair trial. They will say, I'm guilty. They will say it and God will say it and you will say it. You will never have to look into hell and say, I see something wrong there. It won't happen because God's justice is perfect. You can spend the first 10,000 years of your existence in heaven searching through the court records of the judgment and you won't find a shred of injustice. All right, it'd take you about 10 minutes to find injustice if you went through the court records in Illinois. All right, you will never find injustice in God's court records, ever. His justice will be flawless. What that tells us is this. The person who says hell is unfair, what do they really want? They want God to let almost everyone into heaven, right? Is that fair? They want God to cancel the judgment and to say, you know what? I'm just going to let almost everybody in. Like not Hitler or Stalin, but you know what? I'm going to let almost everybody in. Would you allow that in Illinois? Would you allow the Illinois judges to suddenly say, you know what? We're just going to cancel almost every trial right now and let people go free. 
If you don't want that in a human court, is that really what you want in a divine court? No. What that means is they're not really appealing for more justice. They really want less. They really want God to cancel the judgment, which means it's not God's justice that's the problem. They want injustice. If God canceled hell and didn't judge everyone for what they did, you would have to live with eternal injustice. Everyone would get away with everything forever. Do you want an unjust God at the helm of the universe? Do you want unpunished, unaccountable sin to enter into heaven? Because if that happens, it's not heaven anymore. If your iPhone gets stolen in heaven, it's not heaven. What do you really want? The truth is, hell is fair. Canceling hell is unfair. And I don't long for injustice. I long for justice. Also at the heart of this objection is they think God or hell is unloving. You can jot that down. How can a loving God put people in this horrifying situation forever? That's so unloving. Okay, but God is love. God is so loving that he poured all of his love into his son. The fullness, all of God's affections for you and me in the world are bound up in his son. He loves everyone in the world so much that he sent his son into the world to save it. Fullness of his love appeared. And what did we do? What did we do with him? We slaughtered him. We threw him on a cross and then in a tomb. God isn't lacking love. We are lacking love. And that's what we did with his love. So if someone says, I reject the love of God in Jesus Christ, and they end up in hell, and then they say, hey, where's the love? That doesn't make sense. The problem is not a lack of love. The problem is the person who wants to reject God's son and still go to heaven is saying this, I want to remain unloving toward God and get into his heaven forever. That's not loving. That's not loving. At the heart of this objection is not a desire for fairness or love. It's a desire for injustice and and lack of love. They want to justify that. The truth is, this objection creates its own catastrophe. The person who says, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, creates their own catastrophe. Imagine if you're on a plane and God gets on the plane with you. And imagine if God says, Anthony, get off the plane, the plane's going to crash. And then imagine if Anthony says, I don't follow a God who allows plane crashes. He's creating his own catastrophe. In fact, if everyone followed God off the plane, there would be no plane crash. Now, if I were to say, Anthony, get off the trail to hell, and Anthony says, I don't follow a God who sends people to hell, he's creating his own catastrophe. Because if everyone got off the trail to hell, no one would go to hell. If everyone let go of this objection, the objection would vanish. It's self-fulfilling. So don't be intimidated by this when people bring it up. But what do I say? If someone says to me, I can't believe in a God or follow a God. What do I say? There are several ways to respond to this, and I'm not going to give you like 10 ways to respond to this objection. There are many, like for example, some people have a passion for showing people how they are sinful and they violate God's law. They talk people through the Ten Commandments. That's a valid way, okay? But I'm I'm going to show you just one way for all three objections. It's called testimonial, meaning you use your own story to help the other person see how it's true in your life. So here's, what I, here's one thing you can say. When someone says this to you, can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, say this. Hey, hell is my fault. You can write that down. Say that. You know what? 
I got to tell you, hell is my fault. I broke God's law. I broke God's heart. I was sinful. God needed to come up with a place for me because I didn't belong in heaven. Hell's my fault. You believe that? If you're a Christian, you believe that, right? You deserve hell. You don't deserve heaven. You were not born on a road to heaven. Jesus had to change that. So just be honest and say, you know what? Hell's my fault. I put God in the dilemma of finding out what to do with a person who refuses to follow his commands. I did that to God. God didn't do that to me. Own it. It really disarms the other person because you're implying that the same is true about them. That hell is their fault too. And you don't even need to say that. Testify of your own guilt. Then, always mention Jesus. I would recommend, then you can say this, but you know what? Jesus made a place for me in heaven. Jesus made a place for me in heaven. He changed my future. He opened up the garden of paradise. And, and I know that because of him, I could end up there. That's one way you can respond. Now, hopefully, based on that, you feel like if someone were to say that to you this week, again, follow God who sends people to hell, you feel at least a little more prepared to know that argument and and to respond to it. Here's the second one. The second one is this. There are so many hypocrites in the church, why would I listen to them? You can jot that down. Have you heard this one before? Why would I go to church? There are so many hypocrites there. Or it might sound like this. I know so many Christians, and they're worse than me. Or it might sound like this. Um, I know church people. I know churches that fight and split. Why would I want to be a part of that? I know pastors who fail morally. Pastors who sleep around and divorce their wives and steal money from the church. I see those TV preachers. Why would I be one of them? Or priests. I heard what priests do. Despicable. If that's how Christians act, count me out. What do you say? Now, just to be clear, um, I'm not talking about a Christian who uses this argument to stay out of church. Okay, so I'm not talking about a Christian who says, I'm not going to church, I'm a Christian, but there's so many hypocrites there. Different story. I'm talking about someone who says, so many hypocrites in church, I reject church and the Bible and your faith. I reject it all because of the hypocrites. So we're talking about the non-believer, okay? What do you say to someone who objects based on this? Well, uh, understand that this objection is way more bark than bite. There's really not much substance to it. Uh, Why? Well, here's a couple of problems with this objection. You can write these down. First is they, they single out Christians for a charge that's true of everyone. They single out Christians, but the truth is nobody perfectly lives up to their own moral standards, right? As if, like, Christians are uniquely hypocritical and there's no such thing as a hypocritical Muslim or no such thing as a hypocritical attorney or no such thing as a hypocritical whatever. Hypocrites are everywhere. And nobody perfectly lives up to their own moral standards. So they're unfairly singling us out. And we've never claimed that we somehow have cured hypocrisy. That's not our claim. Come to, come to church and we can cure your hypocrisy. That, that's not what we claim. We claim, we're not special because we cured hypocrisy. We're special because no fault was ever found in Jesus. We're special because we have a founder of our faith who was faultless. Therefore, we know the person who is the only non-hypocrite in all of history. That's what makes us special. That's what we've got that no one else has. We have a founder who is perfect. 
All right, so they single out Christians for a charge that's true of everyone. Then they violate their own standard of fellowship. You can jot that down. Okay, you have made it your goal to avoid fellowshipping with hypocrites in your life. Therefore, you don't go to the church. Well, then where are you going to go that keeps you away from hypocrites? Show me this oasis of humanity that is hypocrite-free. Is it the gym? Is it the club? Is it the bar? Is it the classroom? Like, where is this place that you have found where you can be around only non-hypocrites? They can't. So if they say, I'm avoiding the church because of the hypocrites there, but I'm going to these other places to fellowship with hypocrites, they have a double standard. And we have a name for people who operate according to a double standard. What, what do we call them? Hypocrites. They're doing what they're accusing us of doing. It's self-defeating. Okay? This is why this really has more bark than bite. There's a third problem with this objection. They're caught in a logical dilemma. They're caught in a logical dilemma. Um, if they succeed in proving hypocrisy is wrong, then they succeed in proving that the Bible is right because the Bible condemns hypocrisy, right? So the Bible says, amen, hypocrisy is wrong. Good job, you just proved that it's true. But they don't want to prove that the Bible's true. They want to prove that the Bible's false. That's a problem because let's say that, bravo, let's say they just did it. You have just poof, proved that the Bible is wrong and we shouldn't follow it. Well, then is the hypocrite doing anything wrong? They no longer need to follow the Bible. Are you following me? If hypocrisy is wrong, the Bible is right. If the Bible is wrong, hypocrisy is right. They've lost the standard to accuse the person. Which is it? It's kind of like if they said, I know a lot of judges who drink and drive, so I'm not following any of their laws anymore. Well, wait, if you are canceling their laws, you're decriminalizing their drinking and driving. It's now legal. That doesn't make sense. The truth, is, the truth is the violation actually reinforces the standard. It doesn't negate the standard. Can't stand all those hypocrites. Right, right. That violation reinforces that the Bible is true. Hypocrisy is wrong. It upholds the law. It doesn't cancel the law. Jesus had stern things to say about hypocrisy. You can turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to see what he said. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, uh, it's there where Jesus tells this, this famous um, illustration of <laughs> what hypocrisy looks like to God. But in Matthew 7, verse uh, 3, it says this, um, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, let's act this out and then I'll, I'll explain what Jesus is trying to say. But I need a volunteer. Um, so I think I'm going to invite up someone who wants to help. Jonah Van Dyke. Come on up, Jonah Van Dyke. Yeah, give him a big round of applause. Come on. Hurry up. Come on. He's already like shaking hands with his fans. All right. Jonah, welcome. Uh, you are going to play the part of the person who has a speck in his eye. All right. But the word speck kind of means thorn or sliver or whatever. So here's your speck. This is a thorn. If you could just stick that in your eye, I'd really appreciate it. Go on. Hold on to that. Just 
got, jab it right into your eye. Okay, good. Now, I'm the hypocrite, so I have a plank that I found here before I came. All right. You didn't stick the thorn in your eye. <laughs> you really don't want to stick it right in your eye, do you? Because that would be a problem. Okay, well, pretend then. Get closer. Now, here, I'm a hypocrite, and so pretend like you've got the thorn in your eye. Okay, good. Now, I'm going to help you get that out of your eye, all right? But the thing is, I've got this plank in my eye, so if you could just, like, hold really still, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come real close and get that out. Is this foolish? What business does the hypocrite have trying to help someone else get the thorn out of their eye? No business! All right, and Christians, we have to be warned. If we live duplicitous lives and we try and tell people about Jesus, this is us. Let me help you get the thorn out of your eye. It doesn't work. Jesus condemned hypocrisy, okay? But here's the thing. What did he challenge us to do? First, get the plank out of your own eye, meaning I repent of my sin of hypocrisy, okay? So I did that. Stay there. So I do that. The plank, I'm free. I can see. I saw my sin, repented of it, and now Jesus helps me see God. Now what do I do? Now I can see clearly to help someone else see clearly. That's God's intent. Give Jonah a big round of applause. Thanks a lot, buddy. All right, so the the person says, I can't stand the hypocrites in the church. What are we supposed to say? Well, understand that People have been hurt by Christians. People have seen hypocrisy and it's wounded them. So you're not going to say this harshly, but I recommend you say this. Listen, I, I was blind to my hypocrisy. You know what? I'm a Christian and I don't always live up to the biblical standard. I got to be honest, I'm one of those hypocrites. Just own it. I got to tell you, I, there are days as a parent where I blow it. And uh, yeah, um, be humble. Tell them a story of how you blew it. Like, for example, when I was a new Christian, I was a new Christian. I was so excited to tell people about Jesus. Uh, but my life hadn't quite caught up to my message yet. So, you know, from time to time, I'd go to these parties that were at colleges far away, and I'd just get plastered. I mean, I'd just get drunk. And then I'd start telling people about Jesus. Hey, guys, Jesus. And then somebody finally said, why are you telling me how to live? And then I thought to myself, that's a really good point. I should really stop this. It's hurting my ability to share Jesus with others. So uh, praise the Lord. I've been sober for a whole week now. You guys can celebrate with me. Glory. That's not true. What's true is God did a work in my life early on that's held to this day. Now I've got a story. And if you're honest with people and you tell them, yeah, you know what, I blow it all the time, but then you tell them how God is transforming you, then you give them hope. The problem is the hypocrite with the plank in his eye doesn't see his sin. He's blind to his own sin. So the more you see your sin, the less of a hypocrite you are. But you can't stop there because you're also supposed to see the sin in the other person. You're supposed to gently help them see that too. Write this down. Tell them, Jesus, help me to see God so I can help others see him too. Jesus mentioned Jesus all the time. Jesus, help me to see God. I was blind to him. Now, now I can help others see him too. And you know what? When I look at Jesus, I never see hypocrisy. I see perfection. And I still battle with sin, but Jesus promised that one day I'm going to be just like him. Give them hope. 
All right, so the first one is, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Tell them, hey, how's my fault? Second objection, you know, I can't believe in a God because there's so many hypocrites in the church. Tell them, yeah, I'm one of them, but God's doing a work in my heart. Third, and this is the hardest one of them all. Third, people will say, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering in this world. I can't believe in a God who would allow so much evil, so much pain, so much suffering. Hey, this is a heavy question. Um, The worst thing you can do when someone voices this question, the worst thing you can do is get technical. The worst thing you can do is get theological, um, cold and clinical, because the chances are this person has wounds and heartache and pain and they don't know what to do with it. And they can't reconcile what's been done to them with God. They they can't put those two things together. And if you have any hope of helping them, you have to instantly click into pastor mode. You are now shepherding them and trying to find out what is causing this pain. There are many ways this objection can be voiced. Read the headlines. How can God allow a mother to drown her own children and do nothing? How could God allow nations to go to war and massacre each other? And there he stands. Why would God let people in third world countries starve to death? All they need is bread. Where's God when a woman is getting raped? How can God allow terminal illness? It would be so easy for him to change the situation and he doesn't. You need to know that you shouldn't back down from this objection. You shouldn't be scared and you shouldn't go silent. Uh, I'm going to share with you how there are problems with this objection, okay? But this isn't really what you're going to share with the person. I just want you to know how to analyze the objection so you know, but you're not going to be like, there's a logical flaw in what you're actually saying. Let me show that to you and then you'll be fine. All right? Here's the problems with this objection. First, eliminating God doesn't solve the problem. Congratulations, God is now gone. Based on the suffering and pain in this world, you have vanquished him and all thought of him How do you now explain all of the vile, treacherous, horrific things that people do to each other? You still need to explain it. You still have to explain why people are so horrible to each other. You still have to explain how tragedy comes about. You're not off the hook. And frankly, you have to ask yourself if the new explanation is better than the old. Do you really believe? Well, it's all genetics. People can't really change their genes. Well, that doesn't soothe the person who was just victimized. Well, it's the society. If they were raised right, it wouldn't have happened. Well, that gets the person off the hook. You know, well, you know, uh, this world is just from the cold, dark chaos of physics and, you know, it, meaning there's no right and wrong anymore. So what did they do wrong? In other words, when you get rid of God, the problem is still there. You have to account for the evil that happens in this world. And Christians would argue that in getting rid of God, you get rid of the explanation for where evil came from and the solution to where it's going in the end. You lose both of those things. The second problem with this objection is without God, the question isn't even valid. If there is no God who made all of us and there is no objective moral standard, 
that someone will hold us to? On what basis can you tell me that I have done something wrong? I have done something that was my right to do. In my opinion, it was the best thing to do. All right, I ran over your cat with my car. So what? I was having a bad day. I felt like doing it. Based on what did I do wrong? You can say, well, there are laws. Okay, but in this country, we have different laws than in Iran, whose laws are right. If, if morality comes down to a show of hands, then as soon as the majority says your pain is no longer criminal, you're out. You can't say it's wrong anymore. In some cultures, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat their neighbors, which is right, which is wrong. If you don't have God, if you don't have a higher moral standard that applies to everyone, you can no longer tell another person what they did is evil. You don't have the vocabulary to say it anymore. You just have to live with people can do whatever they want. You lose the word. Without God, the question isn't even valid. People are allowed to follow their own beliefs. Third problem with this objection is it puts the question in instant jeopardy. I can't believe a God who would allow so much pain and evil and suffering in the world. Question, are you a sinless being? What do you think they would say to that? No. Have you contributed in any way to the evil, pain, and suffering of this world? Yes. You really want God to get rid of all of it? Where does that leave you? gone. The questioner is wishing himself out of existence. If you really want God to get rid of all evil, pain, and suffering, you're gone. Or you're different. You no longer have freedom. You're not yourself anymore, and God's going to show up and micromanage you to make sure that you are only doing right all the time, which I think you'd have a problem with. Do you see how this accusation puts the questioner in instant jeopardy? Is that what you really want? So there are problems with this objection, but that's probably not what you're going to share with the person. <clears throat> what would you share with the person? Well, I recommend you tell them that the Bible is very aware of the problem, and God, in fact, welcomed this question to his face. In Genesis 18.25, before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their vile sexual immorality, Abraham said this to God because he had relatives there who he didn't want to see them get killed. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, God. Shall not the judge of the, all the earth do what is just? God let Abraham ask that to his face. God welcomes the question. Go ahead. Cross-examine my goodness. I will not do wrong. I would say that you, you can tell the person who says, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering, tell them there's a beginning, a middle, and end to the story. Listen, in the beginning, God made the world good. He did not inject evil into the world. In fact, he set us up for paradise. We blew it, not him. It's our fault. Say, hey, we're in the middle of the story now. God allows people to freely choose and enjoy to follow him or to freely reject him. And he's not about to come down. Like if you saw the Lego movie, he's not about to come down, you know, with Craggle and start forcing everyone to only do what is righteous. He's not there. So people are going to hurt you. People are going to hurt you. You're going to hurt people. We're in the middle of the story. But we find out time and time again in the Bible, God is able to use pain to fulfill his purposes, which is why Joseph, when he was sold by his brothers into slavery and they went home and told dad, he's dead. Oh, I got eaten by a wild animal. Sorry, tough to be you. 
They lied to dad, sent their brother off into slavery in Egypt. And then many years later, when Joseph was able to save the family, do you know what he said to his brothers? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Both are true. They did mean it for evil, and it was just that. But God meant it for good. And in the end, that's what it was. The same is true about your pain and suffering. God means it for good, no matter what else people do to you. This is the middle of the story. But there's an end of the story, and that's where our worldview is unique. In the end of the story, God will hold every person accountable for all of the sin they've ever done. No one gets away with anything in the Bible. Anyone who's hurt you will be brought to trial and justice will be served. No one gets away with anything at all in the Bible, ever. It's all being written down and God will bring judgment. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Where do you turn if there really isn't a God? If you have convinced yourself because of the pain and what's been done to me and what I've seen in the world, I'm done with God. Well, then there's not going to be a judgment and everyone gets away with everything forever and it all happened for no purpose. Does that sound like a better plan? Not to me. Doesn't sound like a better plan to me. In the end, God will make every wrong right. Also, heaven is a place with no more suffering or pain or sickness. You were made to long for a world with no more sickness. You were made to long for a world with no more injustice. You were made to yearn to see a life where there's no tears that fall anymore. You were right to want that. But God is the way to get there. That's what heaven is. Heaven is the freedom from all the pain of this life. Listen, God did not make the best possible world for us to live in here. He made the best possible means to the best possible world. The best possible world is on its way. We're just passing through. And I love how the Bible gives us a perspective for our pain. In Romans 8, uh, verse 22 and 23, the Bible gives us this description that is comical and so helpful. It says in Romans 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation, that's the whole universe, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the universe, according to the Bible, resembles a very pregnant, angry woman. I've seen this on TV. I've seen a very pregnant, angry woman. And she's like, oh, oh, you did this to me. Get away from me. Oh, it hurts so bad. And that's just the agony on the way to the birth. And then when the birth comes along, you know, we've had three kids. And in the Lamaze classes, they show you videos of women screaming. They scare you to death. You're like, oh my, we've changed our mind, but it's too late. The baby's coming. And it's agonizing and it's painful and it's horrible. And then, and then, and then there's a baby. And all the pain is forgotten. Because there's new life that's brought into the world. Pain? Absolutely. But when the pain gives birth to new life, the pain is forgotten. That's this universe. Are you experiencing pain? Absolutely. But it's labor pain. It's labor pain. And all of it will give birth to a brand new life. Eternal life. And when that comes... You won't remember the pain ever again. That's the Christian worldview. What do I say to someone 
I would just counsel you this. If someone brings this up, they are hurting. You have to be so careful and loving. But here's what you can say. Say, listen, Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered. Tell them this. Tell them, hey, hey, God suffers. Jesus suffered because because we threw him on a block of wood. Because humanity cracked him over the head and mocked him and spit in his face. Listen, God suffered the agony of watching his son get tortured and killed. God knows pain. God was grieved in Noah's day. He knows pain. And he knows God can suffer because of us. God suffers because of you. But Jesus suffered to end all suffering. That's a big thing to share with them. Listen, God suffers because of you, but God suffers for you. Jesus died on the cross to take away all of your suffering forever. God suffers for you. And then tell them this. You can write this down. Tell them, Jesus is walking with me to the end of all my suffering. Tell them God suffers because of us. Tell them God suffers for us. And tell them, listen, God suffers with us. My God suffers with me. This is a really big deal. Christians, you need to understand that God has allowed pain in your life. Am I right? Am I the only one? God has allowed pain, deep wounds, hurt from people who were supposed to love you, baggage that you can't go back and change, sickness that you can't cure, fallout from relationships that you can't fix. I mean, the full pain of this world has fallen upon you and on me. And other people in this world who don't have your hope need to see you bringing that pain to God. They need to learn that when God brings pain, it's to... It's to drive us into his presence. Tell the person how you have been hurt. Tell the person how you have suffered. And tell them how when you have gone into the presence of the Lord with the pain of this life, he has met you there. I want to do something really special at the end of this message to give you a chance to start practicing what I'm challenging you to do. Listen, Christian, Christian, I want you to show other people how you bring your pain to God. And listen, there are other people in this room right now who are not Christians. You're not a believer. You're still undecided what you, know, what you believe about all this. And I, I want to show you something really special this morning. I want to show you something about Christians. We bring our pain to our God. We bring our pain to our God. And he meets us there. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up right now. And... Um, They're going to start us on the last song here, but Christians, I want to give you an opportunity to to testify. I want to give you an opportunity to show off your God. If you have a burden that is just too heavy for you to bear right now, I'm talking a big thing. I don't mean like an ingrown toenail. I mean like you have a burden. If you have a sickness and you don't really have any hope of things changing, if, if you have an injury, something that a wound that has not been cured yet. Listen, Christian, I want you as this song starts to stand up and to come down front. You've got space all along the front and I want you to bring your pain to God, to pray to him, to show everyone that this is what Christians do with their pain. We're going to start the song right now.
And Christians, listen, this is your time. This is your chance to show that we bring our pain to our God, confident that he will meet us there. So you can feel free right now. You can stand up, you can come forward, and you can pray right now to the God who loves you. Do it now.